This is the I Read Comic Books podcast. I'm your host, Tia, and this is not an interview. For my fourth episode of this miniseries, I'm talking with one of my favorite people, Alex DeCampi, writer extraordinaire of Twisted Romance, No Mercy, Mayday, Judge Dredd, the upcoming graphic novel Bad Girls, and a lot more amazing titles that we'll talk about in the show. You should definitely check those out after you listen to the episode. You have been very busy writing this amazing graphic novel, Bad Girls, and I'm really excited that it came out as a graphic novel as opposed to like monthly issues. Me too. I, I like books. It's nice to not have to worry about how long your chapters are. I mean, they are all about the same length, but they don't necessarily have to be 24 pages, if you know what I mean. And, you know, every chapter does sort of end on a cliffhanger or a moment. So the actual structural writing of the of the of the book isn't that isn't wholly different from writing it in single issues but there's just something really satisfying about the whole thing coming out like you know as a just as a book right yeah i mean i like to binge read i like to have hardbacks on my shelf it's all the things that that you like in an object yes and it's you know to be honest sales of every comic you know pretty much have after the issue one there are very few comics that you know, stay flat. We were lucky to stay flat with Twisted Romance, but that was because each issue was standalone and had a different group of people involved. But usually, like, it's down 50% between issue one and issue two, and then between issue two and issue three, it goes down another third. So, like, you get all your bang for your buck when the thing first comes out anyway, so you might as well just bring all of it out at once. I I think you're about to ask the thing I'm about to answer anyway, which is that you know, you need to find very indulgent publishers. And and that's one of the reasons I'm thrilled that more and more of the big trade publishers like Random House and Penguin and Simon and Schuster and Macmillan are all getting involved in, in graphic novels because they understand things like books taking a while and doing the whole book first and then putting it out. Like Simon and Schuster have no desire to do single issues like ever. That's just not them. They sell to bookstores. So is it hard when you're really excited about a project and it's this really long-term thing and then you have to you have to wait a lot longer for anyone to see it, I imagine, when you're doing it all at once? Yes. I mean, there's the, you know, you, you're writing it and, I mean, it's like prose books. Like, it, it's an insane thing to do, writing a book. Like, you spend half a year doing something, at least half a year, if not more, doing something that nobody is going to read or comment on, not only not just when you finish it, because you, know, you always send your script to friends and you, they're not going to read it, like no one ever does. Um, and so eventually you stop sending because you don't want to impose all of that on them. Um, and then, especially for, for a graphic novel, the artist has, you have to find the artist, you have to get a publishing deal after they've managed to fit in doing some sample art into their time. And then... Once you get the publishing deal, it's another four months for the contracts to come through, really. Um, and then the person has to draw the book. And so by the time it comes out, it's like this kind of realization of this distant memory you had. But it's also super exciting. And you're so far along. Like, I have two graphic novels that I've completely written that, you know, they're just like ones, ones with publishers now. Um, and the other one's just kind of on hold for right now. Because I've got, you know, I'm pitching too many other things. I can't do that to my agent, who is extremely patient with all of my bullshit. Um, but yeah, it's it's so frustrating because like the thing that's out on pitch now is like, I think it's the best thing I've ever written, and I'm just like, someone please love it as much as I do. Yeah, love my child. I mean, I think the last time we talked too, you were embroiled in all of this really fascinating research and. Um, you know, I, I, you should all follow Alex on Twitter because, you know, you're always tweeting about, I mean, it's like ballet and revolutions and history <laughs> and working out. I mean, it's like you just you have so many interests, but they they somehow all make sense when you read your book. So you're like, yes, this is Alex DeCampi. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't really tweet that much about comics but I figure everybody else does so but I'm a big history nerd and and Bad Girls was in some ways the book that started all of that um, because I started Bad Girls started out because someone I think it might have been Jim Lee posted 
a bit of Tim Sale art. And if you're unfamiliar with the comic artist Tim Sale, he draws really beautiful women in really beautiful dresses. And it was like a Nick Fury commission. And there's Nick Fury standing in front. And then there's Valentina or someone in this amazing like 1950s dress behind her, behind him. And I was looking at it. And I was just thinking, can we just, just push Nick Fury out <laughs> of the way? Can we focus more on that dress? And can we just have an entire book of Tim Sale drawing women in beautiful dresses, getting up to bad things? Then I started looking for points in history where I could do this book. And I looked at, you know, like the, the, um, the, the partition of India. I looked at, you know, like things, things in the like interesting things that happened around the middle of this, of this past century. Um, what else did I look at? Uh, and finally, I, you know, I, I started looking at the, the casinos in Havana and read like histories by Cubans of that time period and what it was like to work in and to run the big Havana casinos um, and what their relationship with the U.S. mob was and what their relationship to Batista's government was and then how all of that changed when Castro um, came to power and Cuba became communist. And I, and I learned at that point because, you know, I'm, I think my history knowledge is pretty good, but then you find out there are like really important things that happened like in your hemisphere that you just never learned in school. Cuba fell to Castro or rose to Castro, depending on your point of view. Batista was like, they were well shot of him. He was a kleptocrat on December 31st, 1958. So on new year's Eve. And so like there's everybody in these casinos celebrating new year's eve and i i know a lot about expat culture like the united states white expat culture because i i partially sort of grew up in hong kong and spent a bunch of time in spent a year in the philippines some time in argentina and in mexico city so i've seen what like white americans do and white british do when they're overseas and the way they in some ways don't relate to the population like they're very much floating on top like sort of foam, foam on water um, and I could picture these expats in these casinos being completely ignorant of what's going on, really what's going on on Cuba. Cause everyone they know is rich, um, or a servant and they don't talk to them really. They don't speak Spanish. So there's like, they're completely not finger on the pulse. All they care about is it's new year's Eve. How much money can they rack up from people coming to the casino? And meanwhile, like there's literal revolution in the streets, um, So you've kind of found these two situations where, because I feel like stories happen kind of in the fissures of things, right? You know, like, it's hard to find a story in in like, my life is the same as it's always been and everything's fine. There's not a story there. But it sounds like you found kind of two points that you could bring together like a Venn diagram. And in the middle is this group of women who are, uh, well, you know, the the story in, in the book is that they are trying to, they found all this money and they're trying to get off the island. And this is all happening as as these things are, are going on to cause uh, chaos and, and uh, I, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily say like a cover for them because it, it seems like it actually mess, like throws some wrenches in the works at the same time. Yeah, but the money is 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 essentially bribe money. Like the Batista's guys would go around and collect from the casinos as like a license fee. And one of the generals decides to have one last whip around the six casinos so he can leave Cuba with six million dollars. And then he there become issues with him and the money. And the girls essentially realize what he's doing and get the money. And the thing is, the girls are not friends. There's there's Taffy, who's the the, 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 the casino's MC, one of their nightclub performers. She's, she's black American from Mississippi. Uh, there's Carol, who's white American and is um, uh, the, the casino boss, Joe Rothman's girlfriend, Diamond Joe Rothman. Um, and Diamond Joe Rothman is not a nice guy. Like, he's got some serious anger issues. Um, and then there's Anna, who is uh, one of the, the, the mambo queen, like the, the lead right. dancer, essentially. And she's Cuban, and she's got her daughter, Leonella. She's a single mom for, for reasons not of her choosing, um, or indeed of her partner's choosing. Um, and so they're not like, like, Anna and Taffy share a dressing room and are friends. Like, they're friendly with Carol, but it's not one of these stories where, like, three women put aside their differences and work together right they yeah. work together as long as their interests are in line and the moment they stop they are totally willing to like shop each other 
it's not it's not a it's not a happy little group. Well, I mean, I, it sounds like it would be really disingenuous not to address that in some way because it seems like in the in the in the actual historical moment that would have been the dynamic. Yes, I mean, Taffy, if she were working in Las Vegas wouldn't be able to eat or gamble in the casino she was working in. Right. She would have to go down the street to a black casino. Way down the street. <laughs> yeah. She can do that in Havana, but only because the casino also welcomes wealthy Latinos and like you know Cuban skin tones range from, you know, as pale as you as you as I, and I to as, you know, to, to very very dark. Right. And so was it just a happy coincidence that this moment that had these kind of political and social situations where where a story kind of could grow also happened to be a really, really stylish moment? I, I went through history and picked the stylish moment. I was, <laughs> I was looking for the late 50s because of that particular style. Um, and Victor Santos really did a tremendous job bringing it to life. Like he's, he's got such a vibrant line and a vibrant sense of design. Like I do my own lettering and it was a joy just to put the letters on his art because I could just go so many places with graphic design because his, his art was strong enough to support it. And so we made something like, it just made me work harder to do a more interesting job lettering because his art was so good. I loved the song lyrics that are kind of just floating around in certain places because as I was reading, I mean, they're songs that most people I think would know the tune and be able to kind of sing along in their head. And it made me feel like there was, there was background music as I was reading in my head. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. It was a nightmare to get the licenses. Um, Oh, yeah, it's all legal. Um, <laughs> that's what happens when you work for big grown-up publishers like Simon and Schuster. Is is their legal department is like, so show us your licenses for these <laughs> you want to use. And a couple of places I did have to sub out different songs, but usually it was places where there was only like one line or something like right. that, and I just used out of copyright stuff. I mean, even down to the sheet music that's on page two, the, the opening page two and three spread that had to be non-copyrighted music. Um, it's 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 uh, Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. You know, um, I was going to use Perez Prado's Mambo Number no. Five, but I couldn't afford the license fee just because right. there's a minimum there's a minimum license fee. So because um, it's the same amount of paperwork whether you're doing one line or whether you're doing all the whole song. So you can kind of understand why the licensors who are actually very very helpful and and professional and easy to work with. I just hate spending money. So if I am buying to use like twelve bars of the sheet music of of Mambo number no. five, it pretty much costs the same as if I'm going to use the entire sheet music. And wow. So okay. For, and so for things like when we use um, Mambo Italiano, right? Or or open with fever, like I really felt that was worth it and added something. Um, and then, you know, the kids listening to Elvis, which is very different from the music, like the the casino music that we were hearing. Um, I will I. People may never be able to think of Mambo Italiano quite ever again after this. Scene, <laughs> but, oh well. well, yeah. Um, you know, I I feel like not to keep bringing up Twitter. But it's like I'm on Twitter all day. It's like I a little bit maybe, but. You know, I think that there's this idea that you bring in a woman to write a story about women and there's going to be certain things that are or aren't in the book because women write women a certain way. But that's that's just kind of bullshit. And I think that you're a great example of how, you know, there's there's no one way to write uh, as a woman and there's there's no one way to write women and also uh, other people who are not women and things that happen to them and uh, I think that you had had recently tweeted something about how great you write men which I agree and uh, I don't know could, could you talk a little bit about do you ever kind of feel like you bump up against expectations or have you been able to pretty well kind of establish that that you do what you do Oh, I mean, I bump up against sort of a, a tokenization all the time. I mean, every time I'm asked to do work, no, I, I shouldn't say that. Let me back the heck up because 2080 was entirely not that experience and neither was Ghost in the Shell. A lot of times when U.S. mainstream comics publishers ask me to do work for hire, 
they asked me to write a C-list female character because that is all they can think of. Um, they can never picture a woman doing a long stint on a male hero book. I mean, you know, they just announced, I think Teeny Howard's writing one issue of, of Captain America, yeah. like an annual, yeah. like they're, they're, they're letting a whole bunch of like, like women and brown writers on the annuals to do one story, like Saladin Ahmed's doing a Spider-Man and like, that's wonderful. And it's a sign of progress, but still like they don't like, it's the year of our Lord 2018. And to my knowledge, a woman has never written Iron Man. You know, the first black woman to do a male character was Nnedi Okorafor on Black Panther recently. And she did like, it was like a mini series. Right. Um, you know, I can name the, the, I can name every run of six issues or more of a woman on a male character in the past 20 years. Just give me an Alex DeCampi, Bucky Barnes ongoing. That's all I want. I, I, you know, I know. <laughs> or Punisher. I want, you know, I mean, you're, are, is, are there going to be more um, Hell's Kitchen movie clubs? Yes. Uh, for those who don't know, I write a, a um, I joked on Twitter, um, which is honestly how 90% of my, my comics start is arsing about on social media. Um, I think it was during the whole Nazi cap thing and, you know, uh, neo-fascists were starting to wear those Hydra t-shirts and cap um, merchandise, Captain America merchandise to rallies. And I'm like, this is not like, like, this is, this, this is all bad. Like everything is bad. And I said, all I want is a comic where Frank and Bucky or the Punisher and the Winter Soldier sit there and watch action movies because nobody wants to watch Rambo with them. They're all like, I'll get triggered. And <laughs> like, like Frank and Bucky, who know what real violence is, like find these movies actually incredibly soothing because they're just ridiculous. And then they comment on how bullshit everything is. Yeah. Um, and so I, and then my friend Dave Acosta, who's right now drawing the Elvira comic for Dynamite and 12 Devils Dancing, um, which is an amazing book. Like everyone should pick up 12 Devils Dancing. And he, he just tweets back, I'll draw this. And so I sat down last summer and wrote like 12 episodes of this really simple like eight panel comic of the two of them sitting on the sofa it's like a one camera show um just bitching about like stuff um and it's really fun and then we and then the vegas shooting happened and we and dave lives in vegas and had actually he'd done a lot of the graphic design for the festival and his wife had volunteered at it um and so we did a uh like a very quick story because like i think about the punisher a lot as a character and and like white male terrorism in america and and spree killings and i think it's he's one of these really, really interesting characters that you could write him really intelligently to condemn a lot of that right um and because he is very much the avatar of this sort of thing this like white male vigilante with all the guns that like like i kind of itch to write him because it's it's such a challenge to like he, like there's a very thin line to walk with the punisher in terms of him not being a hero and in terms of not condoning the sort of vigilante vigilanteism he does. I mean, Garth Ennis was always very good at that, but I think there's more you can do. Um, and I just like, like, and I, I love writing the winter soldier because like, here's someone who has gone through a metric fuck ton of, of trauma and he's not okay, but he's still going. Yeah. And I think like, I always hate it when he's just written as like a brown haired version of cat because I think it's really important, like, it's it's really important to write the veteran characters well and to write trauma survivors and PTSD survivors well as people who are continuing to struggle and will probably struggle with things for their entire life, but are still moving forward in their own way. I think that it's hard for those people, too. I mean, it's hard for me sometimes when it's like you simultaneously want people to know that you had to use everything that you had to get out of bed and like go about your day that day. But you also don't want anyone to know that you're struggling that much. Absolutely. So it comes out in little things. I mean, yeah. we had, like, in the, in the, in the Las Vegas episode, which I think Marvel are kind of mad at me about because like it got, it got seen by like over a quarter of a million people. And at that time, the cat, the Hydra cat book was selling about 30,000 copies. Of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like it's mine's free and on the internet. So it's, it's not right. really comparable, but still, you know, I, I, I think it's people like writers who haven't experienced significant trauma in their lives um, tend to overwrite the trauma also because it, it like it leaks out around the edges. Right. And 
so one of the things we did in, in, in the Vegas one, in Silent Running, was like, Bucky just walks in, hands Frank a bottle of, of whiskey, you know, um, and says, like, can't drink new meds, but I bought you this. And everyone with PTSD who read it was like, he's on PTSD meds. Yep. And like, I didn't need to say anything. All I needed to say was that. And people were like, thank you for normalizing my existence. Like, thank you for like, it, and it was really touching. So I, I just kind of viewed it as this throwaway, throwaway line. So of course he's on meds. Like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> he was a prisoner of war for 70 years. Like, there is medication involved. <laughs> Trust me. No, but I mean, it is the little details like that that make people feel like I'm being seen and or not even like I'm being seen, but just the, you know, if someone else gets it, it's such a relief that you don't have to explain it on some granular painful level from square one every single time. Yes. And like, you know, it's not like they're, they're, sometimes when I say people overwrite it, it's like they're tr- they're trying to be an ally, and you can tell they're trying to do their best. And it's just like just just it's, it's okay. And I've also weirdly just spent a lot of time in some really really macho, like mostly male environments. Like I started off my career doing investment banking in Hong Kong um, as an analyst. That's that's a hell of an environment. Let me tell you, those guys like they're fun. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I love them. Like I do, but. You know, um, you know, sailing on an almost like racing sailboats on an almost professional level. Um, also in Hong Kong, like, uh, you know, comics to some extent. Just um, I do feel like at some point we're going to need an autobiography here. <laughs> All of this sounds pretty exciting. It, it is. And but like, you know, you sort of learn like I'm really fascinated by patterns of male friendship and the way like masculinity fronts and what it hides and where you see the light shine through. Yeah. Um, and so like, I find it, I don't find it hard to write these, these stereotypically very macho hero characters. Cause you just, every so often you just show the cracks. You know, it's interesting because I feel like I, you know, I, I really value my female friendships. Like I would not be here without the women in my life, but I love hanging out with bros Yes, because like they just go through life with this sort of way about them. And as a woman, I will never have that because if I were to act that way, it would be inherently political for me to act that way, which would defeat the entire purpose of the broness, you know, and at the same time, I sometimes wonder if they like having me around because they don't have to bro quite so hard. Yeah. But also sometimes you get the looks over like, like, is she going to be offended by that? Right. But like when you go out with a girlfriend who's had a rough experience, you go for cocktails or wine and she starts telling you about it immediately. Right. When you go out with a bro friend who's had a bad experience, you go sit somewhere where there's a sports game on and you, it takes the entire game and five drinks and then they start talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, they always start talking about it. But like, you know, it <laughs> takes a time of like both of you pretending that everything is fine and drinking and maybe having a little light chit chat about something and watching the game. And then eventually they'll talk about what really like they'll kind of get the courage up. And in some ways, like there's this like women have a certain emotional courage that men don't. At the same time, I don't always I chafe under that. No, but, but yeah, it is. But like, but it's such a relief for me. What sometimes when I get to go to the bar with the bros that we do the five drinks and we don't talk about anything like that sometimes is is kind of a relief to me. Yeah, because sometimes yeah, sometimes you just don't want to talk about like where your love life isn't or like you know <laughs> yeah how horrible things are at work or like yeah you know you don't have to have that pity party in a way or that like discussion of everything um i mean this is also you know, I, like go ahead yeah no i just, I just yeah i just I, I like i like writing bros uh i was i was gonna say that i i think this is also why i like working out so hard because you just you know you don't have to be sense like you just could be kind of in a moment and doing a thing and whatever sort of stuff was going on in your head you just drive it away with exhaustion yeah and you can be completely gross and not talk and like the bros won't ask you to talk you know they'll right. be a little bit of like hey what'd you do this weekend oh this is what i got up to cool you know then you get weights and 
I entirely know that like the gym for me is a coping mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I am 100% fine with that. Like my life has basically been since my twenties has been like changing, like, like the good ship coping mechanism towards healthier and healthier things. Um, and I've always, like, I've always exercised and worked out. Um, and it's just like, especially cause I spend so much time in my own head as a writer. I mean, it's one of the reasons yeah. I feel I, I'm really happy to be in New York city now, um, after much traveling around and being in rural places of late. Um, cause I need to like interact with people, but sometimes not interact with them. Like I need to see them and like, see, like I need to be able to observe things and, and, and also going to the gym, like, because that, like, even though like literally everybody in my gym is in show business, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> nobody talks about work and nobody knows anything about comics or publishing. And it's fabulous. Yeah. No, I, so, I mean, it's a little bit hard for me because I have a lot of baggage when it comes to physical activity from, from being a dancer. And so I like to go to gyms, like, as in like, people always are like, oh, you're in New York, you must take class at Steps on Broadway every day. And I'm like, no, I never do. Because I would rather go to the gym where people don't, people aren't like sizing up my toe point, you know, or just kind of like doing our thing. Yeah, you just plonk on loud music and like zone out for 45 minutes and occasionally nod at people as you walk by. Exactly. Yeah. No, New York is good for that for sort of being in a group but not have to no one really wants to talk to you too much whereas I was just in Charlotte North Carolina and I'm best friends with like the guy at the grocery store now and you know just like the random lady that I walked by at the airport (laughs) yeah no I I find like New York is friendly though like it's friendly in a not like too in your face way so and I like that like people can people just naturally give each other a bit of space I mean, if I didn't have going to the gym after work, I would just go home and and lock myself in a dark room. And like my whole life falls apart if I deviate from my going to the gym. And it's definitely a coping mechanism for me too. And I feel like I'm also fine with that because if I just stick to the plan, then the rest of like I can, you know, I could go to the grocery store and feed myself like a normal human being. And like I wash my hair on a regular basis. But if I don't go to the gym, then I just... I become a complete like depressive garbage person. Yeah, I I also like I I have a a mild insomnia and a very fast metabolism. So if I don't physically tire myself out, my brain decides to keep me up until three a.m. reexamining that really bad decision from twelve years ago. <laughs> Sounds healthy because I I can lie there and get my brain like it. I can give my brain a job that isn't like reviewing the greatest misses of high school. Uh, <laughs> like okay brain now we're gonna think of this story what happens next to these two let's do bad things to fictional characters right do you try really hard to keep yourself out of your writing or do you kind of find it cathartic to put yourself in your writing and then work things out in in your fictional world that you're in control of oh everybody goes into my writing you know people I've barely met like one of my acquaintances at the gym is 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 like kind of inspired one of my main characters in the in the tv thing i just wrote because he just has a very like specific body language it's neither a good body language nor a bad body language but he's like he's quite stiff in some ways the way mm-hmm. he interacts with people and like this is 100 percent like it just brought to mind the physicality like i think a lot about how my characters move and talk and 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 what their body positions are and that really helps me uh, picture them as people and then i can write them much more easily right um, and I definitely put myself in like I, you know, every little thing. I mean, there's this wonderful uh, Milan Kundera quote about um, my characters are, are my and my friends unrealized possibilities. And so it's not necessarily like this huge kind of like, here is my past. I am barfing it all over the page. But it's like, here's this thing that happened to me that still kind of bothers me. And I'm going to kind of like dig into that and fictionalize it. Um but the but it's happening to a guy now, and that makes it slightly different because this guy is like does this particular thing, and and so yeah, I mean I think um, there's this wonderful uh, essay by uh, Sheila um, what's her surname? She's Sheila Kathleen on 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 Twitter um, about putting your heart into your work, and she basically says like you like everything everything you do in the creative arts, you should put your heart into. Um, 
and you can totally rip your heart out and bleed all over the page or all over the stage or all over the dance floor. And the great thing is like your heart always grows back. And it's, you spend a lot of time in your early writing career being afraid. Right. Um, or writing things that you think other people want. And then after a certain point, you just decide, you know, forget that. Um, and you go for it. And once you start going for it, like it just becomes, if not easy, I mean, the good, the good work is never easy. The good work is always terrifying. But you get used to the fear um, and you get used to moving through it and understanding it and digging into it and working out why it's terrifying and, and pushing, pushing in. And then also like the other magic thing about writing is, is you can put all your sadness and all your anxiety and all your fear into a book and it doesn't all stay there, but a lot of it does. And then someone pays you money for it. And that's like the best <laughs> trick ever invented. Does it help also when people read it and say that something really connected with them or that they felt like it helps them to read? Like, do, do, do you feel like you have like a, a network of, of people who get you and, and who you understand because they had this experience with your work that was that was really personal or emotional? I mean, always, but I don't write for them. Because mm-hmm. remember, because of the time frame. By the time I've written it, like, I mean, the, the book that's out on sub now, I wrote in about like four months straight on in a blind fury after Trump was elected. And it's my big kind of like YA Steven Universe novel about how we should all be better to each other um, and understand and embrace our differences, even though it's hard because of like historic cycles of violence. So by the time that book comes out, it'll be like 2020 and and. I won't as much have those feelings anymore and I'll see people connect with them and it'll, you know, it's really wonderful when they do, but there's also a slight like distance now. Right. Well, and I mean, in a way it's, it's a little bit hopeful cause you could sort of say that you had these feelings and you put them on the page and then you've gone on with your life and you're fine. And so if you pick up that book at a point later down the road, you can also, you're also going to be fine. If, if this is something that that resonates with you. Indeed. And and the funny thing is, like, you achieve the uni- universality in a way, not by trying to be universal and trying to appeal to all experiences. Right. You come you, you achieve it by being so particularly specific to something that means a shit ton to you. And you feel like you have a lot of feelings about that you somehow just dig through and you hit that sort of like underlying universality of experience through being very specific. Um, so, you know, in some ways, like some of the books I've written that have been the most specific that I didn't think anyone else would be interested in have also been in some ways, some of my most successful. And it's kind of, it's just like, here's this random thing I wrote that, that just doesn't fit in any genre. And, and like, I just had a lot of feelings. So I dumped it in here and, you know, people have embraced it. And I think that's, that's a really important thing for, younger like or early writers to 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 realize is they can they can be very specific about their own personal experiences in fiction and have a universal appeal even if people people in the industry tell you that's not true i'm telling you it is true i get so frustrated i feel like my i just butt against this wall all the time where people say that you know they I guess marketing data is important. You know, I'm sure that people smarter than me have worked out why, but it just has never made sense to me the idea that these people behave a certain way with their money and the, the media they consume. So we're going to continue making things for them because we're really scared of losing them. And I'm just like, what about all those other people over there? who you know you can't ask people to invest in you that you, that you refuse to give them something to invest in you know i absolutely had a had a prose novel my first prose novel that got turned down from a publisher that i really wanted to be with even though it sailed through the editorial meetings and they loved the editors loved it but the marketing people were like well it was a kind of like it was medieval romance slash thriller um because like nobody watches games of Game of Thrones or anything like that, well, um, and they said, well, and they were like, well, the only comps for this we have are Regency. We only we find this only really works for Regency. Would you write it rewrite it as Regency? And I'm like, I can't do that. It's based specifically on this episode in the Hundred Years War, 
And they're like, oh, well, can't you? And I'm like, no. And like, well, the only other comp we have is a Viking book that didn't do very well. Cause, and people were like, well, we tried a medieval book five years ago. And I'm like, okay, yeah. so the entire Middle Ages are out now. Is that it? Um, and so we're going to kickstart it. You know, Joey oh, Hi-Fi is doing the cover. Hopefully Becky Cloonan is going to do some illustrations. Like, it's all, like, all going to happen because yeah. it's written. Um, and we might as well. And maybe maybe someone will pick it up from there, you know. Stranger things have happened. Yep. And if not, like, it's still just going to get out there. Yeah. No, I know. I, I feel like Kickstarter has just, I mean, as a reader, has been so exciting because I hate the idea that there are these gatekeepers using whatever their marketing data is to, to decide for me what's going on the shelf, you know? Like... Give me, give me the things. Let me decide. Yeah, I mean, especially when they're not giving you an advance. It's like, what are your, what's your opportunity cost for doing this? Like, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I, I mean, if they would just let us be in charge of things for like five minutes. I know. Like, I just, I want to, <laughs> I have plans about that, but they probably won't be realized because they're kind of wild plans, but I have, I have ideas just remember us all when you've taken over the world that's all i ask (laughs) have we have we talked about hong kong before my dad used to live in hong kong and i did i know that you lived there i don't think i did maybe i keep i i i keep forgetting to talk about that sort of stuff i don't know why um because everyone finds it interesting um but yeah, I lived in Hong Kong uh, from 1992 through 1997, went through the handover, Yeah. then was transferred to the Philippines and spent about a year in Manila, and then ended up in Argentina and Mexico City uh, for work. Um, I've, I've lived on a total of six countries on four continents. Um, sometimes I feel like I've forgotten more languages than most people ever learn. Um, <laughs> but Hong Kong was great. I loved it. It was, it was a really great place to go like straight out of college. Um, it's like a continuation of college in some ways. Uh, it, like it, it's just a, I mean, I haven't been back in a long time and I'd like to go back and I know Hong Kong has completely reinvented itself since then. Cause it does that every decade. It's, it's, it's right. like, it's just that town. Um, but it's a beautiful place, um, with these, these, you know, this land rising straight out of the ocean. I mean, I used to race sailboats in Hong Kong Harbor, um, like playing dodge with container ships. It was so much fun. <laughs> Um, you know, the food is wonderful. The, the Cantonese are great people. The women are incredibly stylish. Um, the movies are great. Um, and I think it really cemented my love like it, but it's a, a very loud, smelly, noise, like oh, crowd city. It is. Yeah. And so like it, if you spent time in the Far East, you're either a Singapore person or a Hong Kong person. And there's kind of like no in between. And like a Hong Kong person will like Manila, even though Manila is not a walking city the way Hong Kong is Um, because there's a similar vein of like dirty city kind of crowded, you know, um, urban environment, whereas Singapore is very pristine, clean and, and lovely and just the tiniest bit fascist. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I like, I I love chaos. So like New York for me feels like not very crowded. I go somewhere like Chicago and my, when I was in Chicago briefly, I met some friends down in downtown um, at this really nice bar right on the river. And I, we were, I was like walking through downtown at seven 30 on a weeknight and it was empty. Like it was just, there was like, there was tumbleweeds going down the street. And I'm like, where are the people? <laughs> like, you know, you could film the zombie apocalypse in downtown Chicago at like 8 PM on a Tuesday and it would be 100% believable. Is like 27 because, days later, it's just like, is it the Midwest? Everything closes at 10 PM thing, even in Chicago. It might be. I mean, like, no one lives downtown is the other That's thing. That's true, so, like, yeah. In New York, like, people live in the financial district. People live, like, like in Hell's Kitchen, and, you know, yeah. folks live everywhere. Um, whereas I think there's much more of a, like, the you know, in other cities, it's like, here's where people work, here's where people live. I mean, there are certain areas of L.A. like that as well. Um, I- I feel like that's starting to change because like when I lived there, no one lived downtown. That was not a place people lived unless you lived on the sidewalk. And now apparently there's a Whole Foods there. So, I mean, there you go. There's a Whole Foods everywhere. (laughs) 
I like to pretend LA is a European walking city, so I always stay like, like certain parts of Venice Beach near the Whole Foods on Lincoln. Like it's just uh-huh. far enough that like you can get to all the good restaurants on Rose. Um, but still close enough to the beach that you can go running in the mornings. Like, I, it's fabulous. I'm good. So all my friends are like, why don't you live in Ho- like, why don't you stay in Hollywood like a normal person? And I'm like, nope. Yeah, I grew up at like in Redondo Beach, basically, and which is great and has some of the best sushi in America. It's the best. I mean, it was like an an ideal place to grow up, and um, you know, I just no ocean is does for me what the Pacific Ocean does for me. I I just like I miss it in a in a, like a cellular way. Yeah, I mean, I live fairly near the Hudson, so I can go like I can see water, but it's not the same as as as, as a as a big ocean. But it helps. But yeah, like why would you live in L.A. far from the water? Like I don't understand this. I have a fundamental problem with understanding why you wouldn't be near the ocean, and like and also there's that like I just feel again it's a mental health issue for me, like a self care issue, like. All those folks that live up in the hills and those beautiful houses and stuff like right. where you have to like get in your car and drive 15 minutes to get milk. Like, no, no, I would be crazy. Also, I mean, like, you know, bobcats come and eat your pets and like your house slides down the hill at some point. Yeah. And fires and, and fires. You know. Yeah. No, I miss the beach. I sort of feel like like these people are all like much like have their shit much more together than me because they can be on their own for long periods of time and not go cuckoo um, and can cope with, I mean, I suppose it's like, I mean, you know, like, oh no, a, a, a really nice house. <laughs> they probably send people to get their milk. Yeah, probably, they all deliver now. You can get everything delivered. That's true. But yeah, you, I think you end up as this kind of like weird, you know, Sunset Boulevard kind of character far too easily there. I lived in North east la when i was working at the huntington and i mean it's, it's nice over there there's there's roses everywhere and um w- where i lived was pretty walkable and there you know it but it was but it, but it was a place that was gentrifying and i think that now it was it's completely unrecognizable it's probably been five years yeah i don't know if i would be able to even afford to live there anymore it makes me. I mean, I feel kind of like an orphan. I don't. It sounds like you're pretty happy in New York and having lived all over the place. I had to move around a lot when I was a kid, and I was always on an airplane. My dad lived all over the place, and I have no wanderlust. Like I just want to be one place. I just want to live in one house. I never want to pack a suitcase ever again. You know, I don't know. It just like as a growing up like that as a kid, it really traumatized me in this way where I just like can't put myself on an airplane. I think I think it goes two ways. You're either like you either finish a childhood like that and you just want stability or you try stability, which is what happened to me. And admittedly, like my young childhood was very stable. So I think that might be the difference is while my moving around happened, like in my teens and 20s. Right. Um, But I thought I wanted stability. And in fact, my first marriage was to someone whose family had owned the same land for 600 years. England. <laughs> and unfortunately, I realized I'd been walking through hell long enough that I taught myself to love the flames. And I just, ch- I couldn't do it. I chafed. Like, I need that. I need, like, I like to move around. I like to be a nomad. Like, I'm still that person where if you said, Alex, you could, like, you're going, you're going somewhere. You have 24 hours to pack this up. I'd be like, okay. And then I'd land somewhere. And, and like, within another 24 hours, I'd have an apartment a good gym and a good bar and because I know what the right things in life are. I have priorities um, <laughs> and a good coffee shop. So yeah, I'd have those four things nailed within the first 24 hours. And it's just like, it's how I am. I mean, I, I'm thrilled that I have my apartment in New York now because I own it. And that's a really good feeling um, because it's it's just a space that like sometimes like spaces make like make you feel a certain way and like yeah. my uh, makes me feel really, really happy. Um which is hard in New York because real estate in New York is a, is a struggle. Oh, I, I took advice from you. And I think the last time we talked, last New York Comic Con, I'm sort of slowly moving down the west side. So, you know. <laughs> cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. Like it, the west side's weird. Like, it, like it, 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 it's like cheap, cheap, cheap. Super expensive. Kind of expensive. Less expensive. Super expensive. Like <laughs> you know, as you go down. Um, but it's New York. Like you, you either find like 
where you live is somewhat determined by, by, by like if you find that place. And, and there's always like that New York kind of everyone with a long term apartment in New York that they really love has found it through some weird kind of slightly cheating way. Yeah, definitely. And then you find it and you dig your claws in and you never let go. And everyone else is constantly on the lookout and like is ready to move at the drop of a hat. Yeah, I mean, it's like it is shark infested waters in the biggest way. I mean, I, the only reason I got my place was that when they showed it, it was um, like the first week of 2017 and there was a snowstorm and no one was in town <laughs> and not that many people showed up. If they'd showed it in like a sunny weekend in May, you know, it would right. have been would have been piled on. Well, I mean, you have you're you're a writer. You could see potential in things. <laughs> well, I've also lived in so many apartments that I've I've like got it down to a science now, like what I need and right. where it needs to be. Like I need to be near the Hudson, near a running path. I need high ceilings. I need several different rooms. I don't really work well in lofts because I I kind I the experience of writing is like being a cat and moving from sunbeam to sunbeam. I stay productive if I like shift where I am about every two hours. Interesting. I'm like the exact opposite. I, my, in grad school, I had to live in the grad student's apartment situation for a semester. And it was like a three bedroom apartment in St. Louis. It was huge. And I tried to set up all my furniture and like have a, a room for each thing. And within a week, I had dragged all of my furniture, including my bed into the living room. And that's where I stayed. <laughs> I just I, I don't know I I just need a nest I just need a nest yeah I mean I spend a lot of time in my bedroom which is a nice bedroom and but I've also got this giant white leather drug dealer sofa nice uh, that that's by the window and I can I, that's on the other whole other side of the apartment and then I've got a bunch of friends I I write with every Tuesday morning in Soho we just get together and spend half our time writing and half our time gossiping um in a coffee shop and it's great and just like it's nice to like you organ I organize little networks that that kind of help me stay good because like you, you know how it is in like a big city like some you know New York or LA especially like you can go three weeks without seeing friends because like it's not that you don't want to see each other it's just like your schedules are messed up and on the one night everyone's free someone gets really tired and can't leave their place and you know it just it, it just mushrooms mushrooms and sometimes you end up feeling like oh nobody loves me I don't have any friends and you realize you have lots of friends and you just need to be the one this time to be like hey what's up you want to meet up sometime and then you schedule something two weeks in advance because right. that's the best you can do so it's this weird kind of constantly reminding yourself like not to have self-worth issues <laughs> and just like <laughs> text your friends they want to see you they're having a lot of good time too yeah, no, I almost never socialize, but I'm trying to be better about actually leaving my apartment to do things other than go to the gym. So I went to my friend's newcomer night at Gotham Comedy Club last week. That was the time. <laughs> there were a lot of white men in polo shirts saying horrible things. And it was <laughs> uh, my friend was very funny, though, uh, because she was not a white man in a polo shirt saying horrible things. But, you know, the basic theme was chicks, man. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but it was fun, you know. It was like a, I feel like I've done a New York thing now. Yeah. I don't know. See, how I'm, I'm, my, because of my daughter, I try to do New York things. Like she's, you know. So we did a scavenger hunt in Central Park last weekend. We went to the Cooper Hewitt, which is amazing. Oh um, yeah. It's got this whole sensory exhibit, so it's super kid friendly and super like grown up who likes to touch things friendly. <laughs> um, like touch all the things, then wash hands because it's New York. Yes. <laughs> I really need to go see the costume exhibit at the Met. What's up right now? Is it still? It's probably oh, Heavenly Bodies still. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I've got to see that too. I missed I missed the Rei Kawakubo one last year and I really, I'm kicking myself for that because I love her work. I did too, but I did see the China one, which was just like over the top. Amazing. My daughter wants to go back to the Met because we went when the, the Costume Institute was closed and she loved it, the Met anyway, and ran around it and like loved weird parts of it. Like she loved the the American Furniture Exhibit because it was like a little house. Yeah. She's like, it's a house within a house. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> it is. And then we ran around it some more. Has she read from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler? No. Have you read it? 
No, I will have to look. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's about these two children who, and the sister decides that no one appreciates her and her life is boring. So she's going to run away from home and she enlists her brother. She picks the one who saves all his allowance money so that he can fund the adventure and they sneak away and they run to New York City and they live in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they while they're there the museum acquires a new sculpture and the provenance is sketchy and they're not really sure who the artist is and they have theories but they but you know it's not confirmed and so the kids decide they're going to solve the mystery of who made the sculpture and it's just the most yeah it's everything that it, it, like I am so the little girl character Claudia she's like this is great we're in the library it's like having an adventure only you don't have to get dirty like yes girl I get you anyway they sleep in Amy Dudley's bed and they take baths in the fountain so if your daughter or other children you know love running around the Met they should well don't give them any ideas I think it's probably harder to do that now the book was written in like the 50s I will find it it will be our new bedtime reading book this was this is an excellent recommendation good but yeah, that's what I'll do with her this weekend. I'll take her to the um, to the costume exhibit. And there's also some fun stuff in Central Park. There's like paddleboarding and and like a pool over by off just at the top of the mall. And like it's we got to go there again. And there's and there's Coney Island. Oh yeah, there was the Mermaid Parade last weekend. Yeah, I didn't make it to it because we were doing the scavenger hunt, and then right. Lorelai just collapsed because we saw we went to the scavenger hunt. We saw Incredibles too, which is great. Um, the short before it made me cry and also want dumplings at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I am cry. I crave dumpling also help. Um, so, you know, Pixar 10 for 10 on the shorts and my crying. Um, I have not, what I don't do anything. I went to my, my dad just moved to Charlotte. They have their like retirement lake house situation. And so, you know, apparently I only visit family when I could also like fit in a, a comic convention of some kind. So I like went to Heroes for a day and visited my dad and I convinced him to go see Ocean's 8 with me, which was great because afterwards I was like, so dad, did you think that Lou and Debbie were a lesbian couple? And he was like, wait, what? Why? What? <laughs> uh, it was very cute. Yeah, it was very like Harold, they're lesbians moment. But um I grinned throughout that entire movie. It made me so happy. Also, I'm, I think I'm just so tired of, like, I'm a bad writer to follow for comics because I don't really read mainstream comics anymore, um, and I, I've stopped going to see the movies. I mean, I saw Black Panther for the culture, and I loved it. But otherwise, I'm just so tired of, like, the big, like, three hours long, like, special effects extravaganzas. I mean, yeah. and, and I, I still haven't seen Infinity War. No, I haven't um, either. Someone and like my friends make fun of me because like I'm I'm complaining about a movie that's three hours long and has like a billion main characters um, and they all die at the end. And, and my friends like your favorite film is Robert Altman's Nashville, which is three hours long, has a billion main characters and like people die at the end. And I'm like, <laughs> it's there's less CGI. <laughs> you have your reasons. Yeah. Um, and someone put up this this list of like the actual time count of like how long each character was in this three-hour movie. Captain mm-hmm. America was in it for six minutes. Wow. Yeah. It was amazing once, once you saw the breakdown of, of, who, of, of, of how long your faves were in the movie. And I'm like, I'm not sitting through six hours or three hours for like a movie that the ending's now been spoiled for like a couple of characters I like who are in there for two nanoseconds and who die at the end. Well, my fave dies at the beginning and I don't think he's going to come back. And I also am just pissed off at the MCU over how they've treated this character since the beginning. So I'm just like, I almost don't want to see it just to be petulant. I'm I'm not going to. I just, I, I'm, I've realized like they make me sort of sad. Like I'm not, and there's also just so many of them. I mean, Ant-Man's <laughs> about to come out. I saw, I oh. had to see... I had to see Deadpool 2 for work and that's the one that broke me. I'm, I was just like, I, and I love Ryan Reynolds. I think he's great. I think it's hilarious. But the movie was so badly written. It was trying to be like a Russo's movie with 8 billion main characters, except yeah. it was my dad writers. And it like the whole plot hinges on like Deadpool's girlfriend dying. Spoiler, sorry. And Cable's wife and child dying. And I'm like, you've fridged three women. Oh, good. To have the main character like to, to, to give your two male main characters your two white male main characters like their their character actualization and like 
I'm sorry, but like your movie just isn't good enough to support. And the fight scenes were really dull also. Like, let's get real. The fight scenes in that movie were boring, which is bizarre because it was one of the John Wick directors. But he can't pace like fight scenes that star more than one person mm. in a way. And Zazie Beetz was great, but she's in there for like 15 minutes and that's it. Uh, and I just, I just thought, why like, I'm, these no longer bring me joy. Right. They used to bring me joy. They no longer bring me joy. And I feel like I've gotten everything out of them from a like learning about writing those sorts of characters point of view, not like the specific characters, but writing big action extravaganzas. Um, you know, I haven't seen Solo because it, like we just had a Star Wars movie and now there's another <laughs> Star Wars movie. And I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. They're like buses, like, you know, you wait forever and then three right. come up. And so I just, I like Ocean's 8 for me was delightful because like, and I know it's a franchise, but it was a franchise where like there's a really long gap between movies and it's a significant difference. And it was just, it was 90 minutes. It gets in and gets out. It's cheerful and stylish and there are good female characters. I mean, that's one of the things I love most about Black Panther is there were like yeah. three great female characters with like roles other than the girlfriend, uh, the love interest. Um, right. And yeah, I just, I'm tired. I, I'm looking forward to Mission Impossible 4 because bizarrely that's actually one of the best action franchises around and I'm not sure how a Tom Cruise movie became that way. <laughs> All right. Well, I wasn't going to see it, but if if that's a recommendation from you, I will give it a chance. I will see it first because I'm probably going to have to see it opening weekend for work. Okay. Well, I have kept you for an hour, so I'm going to let you go. But before you head out, can you tell us when is Bad Girls coming out? July 17th, um, which is pretty much this, which is a week after my Judge Dredd 2000 AD summer special comes out in the U.S., um, cause I've, I've written like two arcs of judge dread in the magazine and I wrote rogue trooper in the summer special. Um, so yeah, I'm doing a lot of work for 2008, which is like working on my childhood heroes and it makes me really happy. And also they didn't say, do you want to start off with a C-list female character? They're just like, here's judge dread. I'm like, there you go. Aren't you afraid I might drop it? They're like, don't drop it. <laughs> and then for the second arc, they're like, here are the dark judges. We're like, you know, like, it's like getting, giving, giving Batman for your first story. And then on the second story, they're like, oh, here's the Joker. And I'm like, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, and then in August, we have the Twisted Romance trade out. So if you like uh, all sorts of fun love stories um, and some a couple love-hate stories, uh, that's a real feel-good trade for you. Um, I love Twisted Romance. Still lots of people die in it because it's me. <laughs> I, told, I told my agent I was writing a romance book and he, he just, for the, the, the medieval thing, and he just text back what's the body count so far and I'm like 10 <laughs> on the page right. <laughs> um, and then September is Ghost in the Shell uh, which is the big Kodansha Ghost in the Shell um, global neural network book that's me like Brendan Fletcher uh, Jean-Via Valentine like doing chunky like I, my story is like 48 pages like chunky stories with the original Ghost in the Shell characters and all of our scripts and art and stuff has been looked over by Masamuni Shiro himself and I'm never quite going to be over that um, and it's really great Janis uh, Milanoganis did my stuff and he's as much of a Ghost in the Shell stan as I am so like ours is like super super like very much trying to like really feel like a Masamuni Shiro story and look like one too so and you can figure out if we succeed I cannot wait and one last thing where can people find you on the internet I have a weird European name so I am very lucky and that I am findable almost everywhere by that name I'm a bit like the Highlander there can be only one mm-hmm. um, which is Alex DeCampi all one word on Instagram Twitter and Tumblr excellent well thank you so much it was a pleasure to chat with you about all the things and uh, all of your books that are coming out i can't wait everyone should check them out thank you so much you're welcome i had a lovely time thanks for asking me you can follow me on twitter at portrait of madame x you can follow the show at ircb podcast We have a Goodreads group where we have weekly threads, a monthly show, discussions. You can also find us at ircbpodcast.com. It's our website where we have merch, all the shows, a pronunciation guide for creator names. 
You can rate the show, subscribe, and tell your friends if you want to help us out. And we also love to hear from you. You can email us at ircbpodcast at destroythesibe.org. Infinity Shred is the best. They do our music. Xander is also the best. He is the audio wizard who edits the show. And Mike is also, also the best. He's our producer extraordinaire. Thanks to them. Thank you to Alex. And thank you. Thank you.